What is up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Newly Meds podcast. I want to apologize in the beginning here. Took a little bit of a hiatus due to some uh, personal changes in my life, but we are back uh, putting content out, like I said before, at least once a month, if not twice. And with that being said, I really appreciate all of you listening, and today I have a really awesome episode. One of my favorite topics is cardiology, and today we're going to be jumping into the narrow complex tachycardia uh, level of cardiology. We're going to jump into specifically the regular narrow complex tachycardias. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit today about the uh, umbrella term SVT or supraventricular tachycardia. We're going to talk a little bit about AVRT and AVNRT, thinking about the pathways and some EKG features and changes that we're going to see out in the field. Uh, we're going to briefly discuss a few clinical pearls as far as Wolf Parkinson White goes and some other pre excitation rhythms. Uh, and with that being said, we're going to jump into the pharmacology and why understanding those pre-excitation rhythms is really important when we're talking about a narrow complex tachycardia that is regular. So with all that being said and the introduction underway, let's jump right into today's episode, that being our regular narrow complex tachycardias. So when we're sizing up our narrow complex tachycardias, the main thing that we're going to want to look at is, is this rhythm strip that I've now obtained, whether it be Um, a three lead, or uh, hopefully uh, the definitive answer here is a 12 lead, but you can also obtain this crucial part of information from the three lead, and that is, is this rhythm regular or irregular? And the other key pearl here is, is it fast or slow? Are we in a tachycardia or a bradycardia? And clearly with today's episode topic, we're talking about regular narrow complex tachycardias. So a term that you're going to hear very frequently in the field is SVT or supraventricular tachycardia. And really this is talking about any tachyarrhythmia that is occurring above the bundle of hiss or above the AV node. Um, and it's just encompassing a really atrial tachycardia. So some sort of tachycardia that is occurring above our ventricles. Um, obviously, if we break down the anatomy of the name, uh, supraventricular tachycardia would mean uh, above the ventricle uh, fast heart rate, really, if you're going to break that down. But this is truly an umbrella term for a few different things that we should be considering um, as paramedics or pre-hospital RNs or physicians in the field. Um, really, what is this SVT that we're looking at? And when we think about that, um, we really think about how can we classify the SVT that we're looking at. Uh, The way to do this is by first figuring out the site of origin. Are we looking at uh, an atrial or a rhythm that's in the AV node? And then the next thing we want to look at is, uh, is this rhythm regular or irregular? So that's a pretty common theme that you're going to hear Um, Not just whenever you're talking about the narrow complex tachycardia, but really cardiology in general stems from uh, a few key ideas, um, and regularity is one of those major features that we look for uh, when we're sizing up our EKGs. So 
what do I mean when we're trying to figure out what a SVT is? So if we're looking at the site of origin, if we're looking at a regular narrow complex tachycardia, if it's originating in the atria, um, that would be your sinus tachycardia with those uh, P waves that you know are distinct, they're upright, they all look the same. Um, it could be an atrial tachycardia where you have some uh, multifocal P waves that we're looking at and maybe even some uh, premature beats um, that are originating in the atria. It could be an atrial flutter um, and it you know, could be uh, on the irregular side, which we're not going to jump into, but a good thing to consider would be a variable conducted atrial flutter or an atrial fibrillation or even a, a multifocal atrial tachycardia. Um, but those would most always fall into the irregular area of uh, the tachycardias. The next thing to identify if we're talking about still on the site of origin is if it's not atrial, where is it? Um, and it could be the AV node. So the big ones we want to look at here are the AV nodal reentry tachycardia, or the AVNRT, or the AVRT. That would be the atrioventricular reentry tachycardia. And those are the two big ones that I want to talk about today. Uh, obviously, falling outside of your general sinus tachycardia. Um, and the other thing that we're going to hit really big today is atrial flutter, um, especially with two-to-one conduction. There's a lot of really good research papers out there that I'll link in the bio of this video um, that a lot of the regular narrow complex tachycardias we're seeing in the field uh, are really two-to-one atrial flutter. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, the, um, the conduction in your atrial flutters and uh, how that works and a lot of the pharmacology and treatment plans that go along with that. But what we're first going to do is jump into the uh, anatomy and really the physiology and electrophysiology of why these rhythms present the way they do. And with that being said, what is that presentation that you're talking about? So let's get right into that. So the first thing that we're going to do is talk a little bit about the anatomy and physiology of these rhythms and why that is important. So there's really two big meaningful breakdowns when we're looking at uh, SVT and identifying that in a lot of our 12 lead EKGs. Um, and that is two anatomical um, and electropathophysiological changes that we see. So when we have a re-entry circuit, uh, there is a functional circuit, which is seen in the AV nodal re-entry tachycardia, which um, we'll describe in a little bit. And then there's an anatomical circuit, um, which is seen in like an AVRT or a Wolf-Parkinson-White, where a person is born with an accessory pathway, like the bundle of Kent. Um, and that is a true anatomical finding. It's not um, something that is due to uh, an electrical change. So with that understanding that there is uh, a functional pathway and an anatomical pathway, let's dive into uh, a few things that I wanted to talk about in today's episode. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start with 
the AV nodal reentry tachycardia. Um, we're going to do this because this is the functional circuit. This is uh, electropathophysiology um, at the basis of everything. This is uh, a lot of times what we're going to see when we talk about SVT um, in the field. Uh, and this is a really important concept to understand. So with that being said, um, let's understand the concept. So in the AV node, there are two pathways. And again, this is the AV nodal reentry tachycardia. So um, this is what's creating this SVT, but it originates here in the AV node. And we're going to talk about the uh, reason it does this. So there's two functional pathways uh, in the AV node. There's an alpha and a beta pathway. The alpha pathway is what we would call a slow pathway. Uh, it's a slow conducting pathway of electrical impulses with a relatively short refractory period. And then there is a beta pathway or a fast pathway. And that is a rapidly conducting pathway of electrical impulses with a long refractory period. So essentially in an AV uh, nodal reentry tachycardia, three things happen. So a impulse is sent uh, with every cardiac contraction through both these pathways in the AV node, um, down to the bundle of Hiss, um, down to the bundle branches, and finally in the Purkinje fibers, and that's why our ventricles are contracting the way that they are. Um, and the way that this is supposed to work is that the fast pathway, the fast pathway comes down, cancels out the impulse from the slow pathway, and that electrical impulse is then carried anteriorly down. Um, that would be into the bundle of Hiss and to the branches and our ventricle contracts and all is well in the world. So what happens when we get this supraventricular tachycardia that uh, has this AVNRT circuit in it? Um, essentially what happens is as these impulses um, are firing and being canceled out, a premature atrial contraction arrives um, while the fast pathway is still in its refractory period. And then this impulse gets directed down the slow pathway. So once that refractory period in the fast pathway ends, the premature atrial contraction carries itself retrogradedly into the fast pathway. And this creates pretty much a cycle in the AV node of these impulses continually being sent around in a circle with no true uh, slow fast pathway and it creates a supraventricular tachycardia because you have an impulse being sent up retrogradedly into the AV node telling it to fire and also anteriorly into the bundle of Hiss telling it to fire um, but the pathway is caught in itself cycling in a very, very fast rate. And that is uh, why we would see a functional uh, superventricular tachycardia with AVNRT. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this. With our AVNRT, there's a few different types that all sort of carry out that same uh, electropathophysiological impulse where one of the pathways catches that uh, premature impulse and cancels out the other pathway, and we're caught in this circle of tachycardia. So the most common type is the slow, fast AVNRT. It's about 80 to 90% of what we see. 
Um, another type is a fast slow AVNRT, and then there's a slow slow AVNRT. The fast slow is about 10%, the slow slow is about 1 to 5%, so fairly uncommon. So let's talk about these different types, these three different types, and the EKG features that we're going to see and why it's really important to differentiate these. So in our most common slow fast AVNRT, uh, essentially what you're going to see is uh, a very fast narrow complex tachycardia, typically from 140 to 280 beats per minute. Um, and most typically you're not going to see P waves. Um, if you are, uh, they might be retrograde coming after the complex. Um, there may be some before the complex with P wave inversion because the impulse is actually coming retrogradedly to the SA node from the AV node. So you might have some P wave inversion, um, but they are rarely going to be visible uh, before the QRS complex or rarely visible at all. So let's talk about this slow fast AV NRT and what we're going to see on our 12 lead. So uh, typically, you're not going to see P waves. You're going to see our most typical SVT appearance. You're going to see a narrow complex tachycardia with the QRS complex um, being less than 120 milliseconds. Um, this is considering no bundle branch blocks or aberrant pathways. We're talking true narrow complex tachycardia. Um, in the slow fast AVNRT, you may see a pseudo R wave. Um, in V1 or V2, uh, that essentially is going to be a little notching um, at the complex that like R prime, that R RSR pattern that um, sometimes you hear. You're going to have a pseudo R wave um, in those precordial leads, um, and you may have a pseudo S wave in lead two, three, or AVF. Uh, most of the time, though, this is going to appear as our most common SVT. Um, you know, we have a very fast rhythm, there's no P waves, it's regular, not a wide complex, uh, you know, we're going to go down our treatment plan for that. Um, the second type that we're going to talk about is the fast, slow uh, AVNRT. It's like 10% of what we might see. Um, the retrograde P wave in this is more likely to be visible after the QRS complex, um, and typically they're seen between the QRS and the T wave. Uh, the most common feature of this would be a QRS PT complex. Um, and the last one we're going to talk about, which is uh, very rarely seen, the atypical AVNRT, um, is that slow, slow pathway. And the P wave could be seen um, up just before the QRS complex in a uh, mid diastole sort of finding. Um, and it most commonly is seen as just a sinus tachycardia. So that is the atypical ABNRT. So I know what you're thinking right now. Will, this is so overwhelming. There's a ton of information. How can I break it down? So when we're talking about AV nodal reentry tachycardia, there's a pretty easy uh, sort of way to figure out what you're looking at. If you have no visible P waves, you're most likely looking at a slow, fast AVNRT. Um, this is the SVT we're seeing in the field. We've talked about the um, electropathophysiology behind it, that um, premature impulse comes, cancels out the other impulses. You have this 
um, circus effect of impulse in the AV node circling around with impulses being sent anteriorly to the bundle of hiss and retrogradedly to the SA node. That's typically what we're seeing. So no P waves, you got slow fast. If you have some P waves that are visible after the QRS complex, um, typically a decent amount after between the T wave and the complex, uh, you have a fast, slow um, AVNRT. And if you're seeing P waves before the QRS complex, you're typically looking at a slow, slow AVNRT, uh, and your rate is actually probably not going to be that fast, especially if you're seeing the P waves. Um, it could just be uh, a slightly tachycardic rhythm, um, what we're actually really commonly seeing or saying as sinus tachycardia. So let's jump into its counterpart, the AVRT, and then we're going to talk about Wolf Parkinson White. And finally, we're going to jump into some treatment plans and some clinical pearls on our narrow complex tachycardia um, and some really key things to close out this video on what we need to understand in the field with treating these rhythms and treating our patient because we're never going to just treat the monitor. Um, we should always be taking our patient into consideration, taking their history, uh, taking their presentation, whatever's leading up to this decision of treatment, um, we really need to be good clinicians and investigators of the patient that presents to us. So let's talk about the atrioventricular reentry tachycardia. So what is AVRT or atrioventricular reentry tachycardia? Because this is the second sort of umbrella term that we look at when we're discussing uh, SVT. So essentially, as we talked about earlier, there's your functional pathway and your anatomical pathway. In your AVRT, we're talking about an anatomical change that creates this SVT. And that change is an accessory pathway that is formed in these patients. Um, one of them is in Wolf Parkinson White, which we'll be discussing shortly, and that's called the bundle of Kent. But in AVRT, there are two real pathways, uh, like the slow fast that we talked about uh, in the AVNRT, that we're going to discuss here. One of them is orthodromic AVRT, and that is when the conduction goes anteriorly through the AV node. And the second is antidromic AVRT, which is a retrograde conduction. So the one we're going to focus in on today is the orthodromic AVRT. Uh, this is when the conduction comes anteriorly through the AV node, and this would produce uh, a narrow complex rhythm. Uh, again, this is in the absence of any aberrant conduction or any bundle branch block, anything that would widen your complex, obviously. <clears throat> and with the orthodromic AVRT, uh, there are going to be obvious clinical findings with the tachycardic rhythm and then following it. So a few things that we're going to look for in our EKG, a few of the key features um, in an AVRT with the orthodromic conduction, which again is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, the antrodromic tends to produce a wide complex rhythm, so that will come at a later date. But with orthodromic conduction, you're usually going to have a rate, a ventricular rate, of 200 to 300 beats per minute. Um, with this, you are typically going to see some retrograde P waves. 
um, with like a longer RP interval. Uh, so that'll come following the complex, obviously. The QRS should be less than 120, um, obviously, without any bearing conduction or bundle branch blocks. And a lot of times in this, which we're going to use to distinguish this rhythm from um, a AVNRT or a sinus tachycardia that's really fast, is some QRS alternons, uh, where the QRS amplitude is... Uh, different depending on the lead that you're looking at. Some are positively deflected, some are negatively deflected, um, and we'll see this uh, pretty commonly in the orthodromic AVRT. Uh, following the treatment of this tachycardia, uh, rate-related ischemia is fairly common. And um, as everything that I've talked about today, I'm going to link some of the studies in the show notes so you can feel free to check that out. Um, I'll link a couple good 12 leads to look at for examples of, of the tachycardia and following the treatment of the tachycardia, which leads us to our next point now that we've sort of discussed some of the common anatomy and physiology. How can we treat this following that? We're going to speak about a couple of the major indications you need to think about when we are treating these tachycardias. So let's jump into some of our treatment options. So now we're going to talk about uh, what we're all really here to discuss. So I know sometimes that the anatomy and the pathophysiology um, can be a little bit uh, overwhelming. It can sort of fly right over your head. It's really hard to... Um, wrap an idea around a lot of that information. So bear with me. I know that you all um, are here to improve your practice, to improve being paramedics in the field, um, to improve being a nurse in the field of the hospital. So now we got sort of that meat and potatoes out of the way. Let's talk about how we're going to treat our patient and what we're going to do when we are on our own when we're, you know, in the back of the truck looking at this narrow complex regular tachycardia. And really, in the pre-hospital setting, there are three options that we sort of have in our tool belt for how we're going to approach these patients. And those would be your adenosin, the deltiazem or cortisem, and verapamil. And when we talk about the use of these drugs in our narrow complex tachycardias, we really need to make sure that we are good stewards of our rights of medication administration, that we know the pharmacokinetics, and that we know these drugs well. Luckily for you, that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode and talk about it in a little bit of our treatment plans right now. So... Let's buckle up and let's get down and dirty here with treating these tachyarrhythmias. So let's start out with something that we all know and love, our adenosine, or this is going to make you feel like death drug. So let's talk about what adenosine is. Let's talk about what it does, how it affects the body, when we're going to give it, and some sort of contraindications on when we are definitely not going to give it and when we should be a little bit cautious when we do give it. So 
let's talk a little bit about a denizen. It's a short-acting antiarrhythmic. It's a naturally occurring purine nucleoside, and it has an insanely short half-life, um, hence the short-acting antiarrhythmic, right? So we all know and love that this is a drug that we have to follow up with a pretty quick uh, saline flush. Um, I'm going to talk about a m- couple of methods that I use at the end of this sort of brief uh, tidbit about adenosine, but uh, we all know that adenosine has a very short half-life, like 6 to 10 seconds. So we really got to get it in there, and we got to get it to the heart. So like I said, adenosine is a class 5 antiarrhythmic medication, right? It has a super short half-life. So when we give this drug, we sort of see that pause in electrical activity, right? The old sphincter test for a paramedic. We flatline our patient, Heart stops for a couple seconds, you know, maybe a little longer, and then you really start to pucker up a little bit. But this drug really does slow down your AV conduction. So, why is that? So, essentially, adenosine acts on the A1, A2, um, and the A1B, a couple of the adenosine receptors in the body. But what they truly do is they activate uh, something called adenylate cyclase. And this is in our SA membrane, in the SA node. And this inhibits the inhibitory G enzyme. So essentially what this does is it causes a decrease in the influx of calcium and an increase in the efflux of potassium. So Will, what the heck are you talking about? So we don't want calcium to come into the cell right now and we want the potassium to get out of the cell why do we want that it's going to hyperpolarize the sa node and the sa membrane and when it does this it's going to slow the av conduction so that might sound like a lot but essentially what this drug is doing is making our sa node work really really hard to slow down and most of the time stop the AV node. So it's going to cause this negative chronotropic effect and negative dromotropic effect. And it's going to really depress the SA and AV nodal activity, which is why we see the uh, sinus pause, if we want to call it that. But really that, like, like I said, the heart stopping on our three-lead strip when we print it out. So... What are some indications for this drug? Well, we're really going to be giving this uh, for our narrow complex tachycardias. So we know, as we're talking about today, that this drug is going to be given for our SVT um, and most commonly for our uh, AV nodal reentry tachycardia, right? But we may be also giving it for an AVRT. Um, and that's something that we definitely have to think about with this drug. So we're going to start out with six milligrams rapid IV push, followed by 12, followed by another 12 for this medication. Uh, We are going to then constantly monitor our EKG um, for any changes, and our absolute contraindications for this medication are going to be a second or a third degree AV block, someone with 
um, a severe hypersensitivity to this drug, um, and VTAC. We're not going to be wanting to give this drug in ventricular tachycardia. Some relative contraindications here are going to be using it with um, some consideration in our patients who have COPD uh, and asthma, just because we are really going to have these negative chronotropic and dromotropic effects. So we want these patients to um, not have the, the negative uh, adverse effects, the ones that are uh, chronically asthmatic or have a, an obstructive pulmonary disorder. So what are we going to do when we have to give this drug? So when we're given this medication, we need to give it rapidly. There's a couple ways to do this, right? We can use a three-way stopcock, squeeze the bag. The three-way stopcock is going to have a flush hooked up, and hopefully we're just flipping it and slamming the flush. My favorite way to use this medication is to take a flush, expel whatever amount of milliliters you're going to need depending on your dose. So whether it be um, six or 12, you're going to take that amount of saline out of your flush and you're going to draw up the amount that you need of adenosine into that flush. So we are going to uh, then have a flush with adenosine on top. Um, obviously, it's going to mix in a little bit, but uh, the important thing is, is that drug is getting to the heart. And just underneath that adenosine in the flush is going to be our saline. And all that you have to do is hook it up to a good patent IV site. We're going to make sure it's a very good line. Um, anytime we're giving medication in general um, that is IV, we want to make sure we have a good line. We're not going to want to give this medication um, IM because we have a questionable um, IV access, right? Let's be good stewards of our medications um, and make sure that our lines are good. Um, and now this is in our adult patient, obviously. So we're then just going to slam that flush. Once we slam it, we're going to be constantly recording um, and monitoring our cardiac monitor, looking for the changes uh, that we may introduce with this medication. That is one way to go. Now, the only pearl I will say is that we should also be very considerate of using this drug with AVRT because it does depress the SA and AV nodal activity. Um, we may create some adverse effects if someone has an accessory pathway, like in Wolf-Parkinson-White. Um, they may have some adverse effects. Uh, it used to be a heavy contraindication. Um, now it's pretty relative, but we definitely don't want to be putting these patients uh, into cardiac arrest. Uh, the other contraindication is any drug-induced uh, tachycardia. Um, we should really be considerate that the SVT that we're seeing is not uh, from a functional or anatomical pathway, but um, it's because maybe someone snorted a lot of cocaine or, um, you know, did some sort of pharmacological uh event that is making them tachycardic. So uh, we, again, want to be really considerate of those patients um, and not treating the compensatory tachycardias due to exercise or drug use. Um, again, it's going to come down to not treating our monitor and treating our patients. So um, let's be really good historians and making sure we're using our medications in the appropriate way. So that is adenosine. The next drug we're going to talk about is cardizem or diltiazem. So 
Cortisem, another fan favorite for a lot of medics. Um, actually, one of my favorite medications that we carry because it does have a wide array of use in the pre-hospital setting um, under the proper medical super supervision and direction. Um, and again, with the knowledge that you will have uh, from this podcast and learning on your own, this medication can benefit a lot of the patients that we see in the acute setting. So what is Cardizem? Well, as we all know, it's a calcium channel blocker. Uh, more appropriately, it would probably be called a calcium channel antagonist. So essentially, it uh, stops calcium from being released from the cell. Uh, this is done in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and this drug prevents the release of calcium from that. Uh, so what does that do? Essentially, if we can't get calcium released from the cell, the cell won't be able to depolarize. So if our cell can't depolarize, our rate is going to slow down. Uh, Cardizem also will vasodilate the cell. Um, it'll enlarge our vessels, uh, helping to slow the rate and also decrease the blood pressure a little bit. So let's talk about it a little bit. Our dosing is going to be 15 to 20 milligrams for adults. Um, really, this is a weight-based drug. So let's, again, really be good with our medication use. It's 0.25 milligrams per kilogram of body weight IVIO uh, given in a drip. We should be given this in a 100 bag uh, over one to two minutes, uh, and we can repeat this dose after 15 minutes. So again, this is going to uh, prevent the influx of these calcium ions. Uh, during membrane depolarization, and it's going to stop the release of calcium from that sarcoplasmic reticulum, slowing our conduction uh, in the SA and AV nodes. So some absolute contraindications for this medication are going to be wide complex tachycardias, right? So we're really going to be using this for our irregular narrow complex tachycardias, but I would argue um, that we can also use this for our regular narrow complex tachycardias. And I say that because there is an awesome study out there right now that shows the conversion rate of dill versus adenosine for our regular narrow complex tachycardias. Um, and adenosine converted it at a rate of 77%. Cardizem converted it at a rate of 100%. I will link that study below. And to mainly sum it up, it's because a lot of the regular narrow complex tachycardias that we're seeing in the acute setting are really two to one flutter. So uh, a calcium channel antagonist is really good at targeting that um, and slowing our rate. And it really doesn't have those negative effects that adenosine has. It doesn't make their patient feel like they're dying, doesn't stop the heart. It just gradually slows our conduction. Um, and it's not as aggressive as uh, boom, it stopped right off the bat. So another couple of relative contraindications, um, chronic beta blocker use or recent use of beta blockers and hypotension, right? So if this is a medication that's going to enlarge uh, our vessels, uh, it's going to decrease our blood pressure. So um, let's not make someone more hypotensive uh, if they are already, you know, 70 over 40, pretty low MAP, something like that. Um, let's try to improve their pressure before we give this medication. Um, we should also be uh, concerned with patients that are in uh, some high degree blocks. 
Again, we're using this medication for our tachycardias. So finally, the last medication we're going to be talking about is verapamil. And this is our third treatment option for our narrow-complex tachycardias. All right, so we've discussed, as I said, two out of the three uh, antiarrhythmics. So now we're going to talk about verapamil. So what is verapamil? Well, a lot like cardizem, it is another calcium channel antagonist or blocker um, that also falls into the class 4 antiarrhythmic medication realm. So when we talk about verapamil, as we did with all of the medications today, it's really important to know how these medications work and the pharmacodynamics of these medications. So verapamil is going to block... Uh, the activated and inactivated L-type calcium channels, which are the alpha-1 subunit. And when it does this, similar to cortisone, it reduces the frequency of calcium being released and that calcium influx in the cell. Because of this, it's going to prolong our AV nodal conduction time, which is going to give us a negative enotropic effect, reduce our myocardial oxygen demand, and relax our smooth muscles and the smooth vasculature. So, because of this, we're going to decrease our AV nodal conduction time, thus decreasing our heart rate. Uh, And we're going to get a little bit of peripheral vasodilation, and we're going to make the arteries uh, a little enlarged and a little more sensitive uh, to this medication. So... A couple of the considerations then when we're giving this are going to be similar to our cardizem, our hypotensive patients, and we're also going to be uh, pretty considerate of patients who use beta blockers or have heart failure as we really don't want to be aggravating these uh, medical conditions a ton with the use of this drug. But with this drug comes some very hard absolute uh, contraindications. And before I get into that, we should talk a little bit about the dosing. Um, this drug is going to come in two and a half to five milligrams IVIO. Uh, again, it's going to be given IV drip over two minutes in a hundred bag of saline. Uh, and this dose can be repeated in five minutes. And it has a fairly large half-life. It's six hours. Um, so it's going to take some time to excrete from the body, but Um, Nothing really long or insane when we think about half-lives of medication. So um, it does take a a good bit of metabolism to to, uh, produce the pharmacokinetics of this um, excretion and the medication. So we're going to be using this medication, obviously, as we've been talking about, for a narrow complex tachycardia. But when are we not going to be using this medication? We really want to be considerate with patients in a AV block with a suspected cardiogenic shock or a wide complex tachycardia, unless we're thinking um, it's uh, SVT with an aberrancy or a wider atrial fibrillation with maybe a bundle branch block or something like that. We really want to be certain that that wide complex we're looking at is not um, VTAC, right? And the big contraindication here is Wolf-Parkinson-White or some other pre-excitation bypass track. So why is that? And 
Now we're going to jump into that in the end of this episode, and I'll leave you with a few clinical tips and tricks that are going to help you in the field. But why are we going to be super considerate of verapamil with Wolf Parkinson White? So let's dive into that real briefly and talk about what WPW is and why we're not going to be using these medications. So with verapamil, I want us to return to the anterograde conduction that it causes by uh, really delaying that uh, AV nodal time and decreasing the heart rate with that uh, increased refractory period in our AV node. So why is that dangerous with Wolf-Parkinson-White? Well, if we're doing that, we are really enhancing this anterograde conduction And when we enhance that, we're allowing this accessory pathway to shorten its refractory period, which is going to further enhance this anterior, this forward motioning conduction in the AV node uh, as the AV node is getting a slowed effect from our medication, which could cause cardiac arrest. Now, it is a pretty strong consideration, but um, it is not incredibly common, but it's definitely something that we want to use extreme caution in, especially in the acute setting. We really don't want to be giving this medication to patients who have a history of WPW or that are showing some um, cardiac signs of WPW because we really want to do no harm to our patients. So now, I know what you're thinking, Will, how do I even know what WPW is? There's going to be another episode on it, but let's talk about it briefly. So, Wolf-Parkinson-White is essentially a congenital abnormality uh, that involves the presence of an accessory pathway called the bundle of Kent. And we talked a little bit about this with our AVRT and our pre-excitation rhythms. Uh, We did speak... Uh, a little bit on why these are something to consider and why they're dangerous. So with our WPW, um, we are really going to see this congenital accessory pathway, um, and sometimes you're going to see tachyarrhythmias because it's a pre-excitation rhythm and it can cause tachyarrhythmias. So what are we looking for? Well, really, we're looking for a PR interval that's less than 120 milliseconds. We're looking for a delta wave, which is a slow slurring rise of the um, Q wave or the initial portion of our QRS complex. We're looking for some slight QRS prolongation greater than 110 milliseconds. Um, And really what we're going to look for then is the discordant ST segment and T wave changes. Um, And essentially what that means is that these ST segments and T waves are going to be facing the opposite direction of the large component of the QRS complex. So if we have a positive QRS complex, we're going to have a negatively deflected uh, T wave. So that's something that we're going to want to look for. We're also going to want to look for the sort of pseudo-infarction pattern um, where we're going to see a prominent R wave and a lot of our uh, precordial leads, especially V1 to V3, which may look like 
uh, posterior myocardial infarction. So we're really going to want to look for those on our 12 lead EKGs. So like I said, we're going to be doing a more in-depth episode of Wolf Parkinson White, but that was our narrow complex tachycardia. So let's close it out here with a few key pearls that I want you to remember. So when we're treating a narrow, regular narrow complex tachycardia in the field, let's consider all the tools we have in our belt and let's consider our patient because medicine is not one shoe fits all. Our patients present differently. They have different histories. We really want to use the best medication available to them. Always utilize your medical direction, your scope of practice when we're making these decisions and do what is within your scope and allowed under your medical supervision. But let's walk away from today's episodes with a few key pointers. We want to remember that a lot of the narrow complex tachycardias that we're seeing in the field uh, have the possibility of being a 2 to 1 atrial flutter. um, And a lot of these patients actually performed better with the cardizem than with our adenosine. So the one thing I want to leave you with as far as our medications go is knowing our medications extremely well. I can't stress this enough. This is the key and the foundation of many of the treatments that we are allowed to perform in the field comes down to medication administration. So let's be really good with our med admin and our medication and pharmacological knowledge. So the key things I want us to go away with today, let's recall how to identify pre-excitation rhythms with Wolf-Parkinson-White or an AVRT, as we spoke about in the anatomy and physiology section of today. Let's be really strong medication administrators. And I know I have hammered this down hard today, But really, I cannot stress knowing your medications enough uh, in the pre-hospital setting and really in the hospital setting. I mean, this is what we are introducing into someone's body, um, really into their bloodstream, and it can have a huge effect on their life. And finally, not treating compensatory or drug-induced tachycardias, right? We are always going to be treating our patient never our monitor. So just because we're seeing someone who has a rate of 170 and no P waves, let's be good investigators. You know, did that patient just run a marathon? Did they just do a lot of cocaine? Let's really think about why we're treating this patient or going down a specific route that we're thinking about going down. So guys, like I said, all of these studies are going to be linked in the show notes. Uh, As always, I really appreciate you listening, um, diving into some of this knowledge, and I cannot wait to see you put it into practice. Uh, As always, please refer to your local and state protocols, uh, your approved medical scope of practice. Uh, This is not medical advice. This is just a learning environment. Um, So always refer to your approved medical direction and scope of practice when you are engaging uh, in medical treatments and procedures.